Hello, and welcome to The Ripple Effect. This podcast is brought to you by Adelina Tsai, investigative journalist and sociologist. This podcast examines important societal events and analyzes them from an anthropological, sociological, and psychological standpoint. Today's topic is gun violence and its aftermath. We will be covering two significant Canadian shootings. We hope you learned something new and that you enjoy The Ripple Effect. Thirty-one-year-old Alexander Bissonnette is currently sitting in jail, waiting for the day he can see the sun without steel bars obstructing his view. This day won't be long, at least for someone serving time for multiple counts of first-degree murder. On January 29, 2017, Alex Bissonnette went to the Islamic Culture Center in Quebec City, Quebec, and shot and killed six people and injured another eight. According to a CBC article, Alex's father, Raymond Bissonnette, stated how could we have known an unthinkable tragedy was about to occur? Sources who covered this tragedy believe Alex's motive was his right-winged ideologies and how he was an Islamophobe. Alex was studying political science in university and had taken an unsettling interest in former President Donald Trump. As you may know, Trump was the leader of the Republican Party. The Republicans are a right-wing party that is anti-immigration, as they believe immigrants pose a threat to the USA and possibly democracy. Ironic, I know. It can be safe to say some of the remarks Trump has made could have insinuated strong beliefs in Alex. Here's some context into what Trump has said about Muslims. We problem in this country, it's called Muslims. We know our current president is one. You know he's not even an American. We need this question. But anyway... We have training camps growing where they want to kill us. That's my question. When can we get rid of it? We're going to be looking at a lot of different things. And, you know, a lot of people are saying that. And a lot of people are saying that bad things are happening out there. We're going to be looking at that and plenty of other things. Now that we have a better understanding of the tragedy and motive, Let's take a look at this from an anthropological and sociological standpoint. How has racism, specifically towards the Canadian Muslim population, increased in the past years, and how has society let this happen? This is the big question that we are going to uncover. So without further ado, let's dive in. According to the New York Times, Alex lost it when he found out the Canadian government would be accepting more immigrants. Canada, a country that prides itself on its inclusivity and acceptance of all cultures, took a hit when this tragic event happened. Leader of the Montreal-based Centre for the Prevention of Radicalization Leading to Violence, Herman de Paris Okomba, said, Canada sees itself as a nation of immigrants, and people thought that such a thing was impossible here. Bissonnette's crime wasn't just against a community. It was against Canada's collective vision of itself. We are all wounded. When Alex was getting interviewed, he mentioned how he killed the Islamic terrorists, in quotation marks, to protect his loved ones. Another important remark was the fact that experts in the field of radicalization mentioned that the far right-wing believers residing in Quebec created a space where Alex could identify. In simpler terms, Alex isn't just that incredibly rare statistic out of a million. There is an actual growing group of believers in Quebec that all hold these borderline fascist ideologies.
This point leads us to believe that over the past years, Islamophobia and extreme conservative beliefs have become more prevalent. To support this point, Herman de Paris Okomba noted that he has been dealing with an increased number of cases regarding youths in the province radicalized by the far right. In 2015, Mr. de Paris Okomba reported that he worked with 17 different youths who faced radicalization by extreme right-wing believers. Over the following years, these numbers have drastically increased. Just two years later, he was dealing with 126 cases, and one year later, that number was 154. He made a very interesting comment, which explained how Alex most likely started believing in these ideologies. Youths here typically don't get radicalized because they feel discriminated against, since Canada is such an inclusive society. Rather, they get radicalized due to ideological convictions. They feel they must do something to prevent catastrophe. Herman de Paris Okumba. This statement relates directly to Alex Bissonnet. But how does this relate back to anthropology and sociology? The key point to focus on here is the historic trends happening and how society has played a role in it. In 1971, Canada was named a multicultural country, but now we have almost 2,000 hate crimes reported per 100,000. There's no questioning that a single country is perfect and has no isolated issues. But how has there been an increase here in the so-called mosaic country? One answer, social media. In the 1970s, there was no such thing as Twitter or Facebook. The only way to communicate with the people you knew was through a phone. At the time, it was expensive to talk to someone across the world, and it was unimaginable to see them through a screen. Now, with the influence of social media, we can connect to anyone and everyone with just a few clicks of a button. It is easier to find a group of people with similar interests by using a simple search engine. This was the case for Alex. Over 30 days, he went online almost 820 times just to read Donald Trump's tweets about the ban imposed on countries with large Muslim populations. Furthermore, it was also uncovered that Alex was being an internet troll on sites that raised money for incoming Syrian refugees. Not only that, Alex also trolled feminist pages and did extensive research on David Duke, a past leader of the Ku Klux Klan. This could have never happened during the 20th century, as websites like these weren't accessible. This is just one example of how societal developments like social media have influenced Canada. Social media has been the perfect sociological tool to evaluate human behavior within a group. Because Alex was surrounded by people who shared these same harsh beliefs, he thought he was doing the right thing. In fact, Amir Balakasimi, the son of an immigrant man from Algeria, made a very impactful statement. Quebec didn't create the monster, Alexander Bissonnette, he said, but Islamophobia gave him the motive. These final remarks will wrap up our first case study. During this segment, we have learned who Alex Bissonnet is and his motive as to why he killed six Muslims. We have discovered that there have been a growing population of extreme right-wing believers in Canada and that social media has created a place of community for them. We hope you enjoyed the first part of the ripple effect and that you are craving some more. Stay tuned for our second segment where we will be hearing from a special guest about mental illness.
Hello, and welcome back to The Ripple Effect. We have now progressed into our second segment. In this part of the podcast, we will be covering gun violence and its aftermath from a psychological standpoint. The security camera on Danforth Street in Toronto captured Faisal Hussein walking down the street. If one was watching at the time, they would first notice how he was hooded and dressed warmly for late July evening, rather than the gun he held tucked behind his leg. Although moments later, not only would the camera capture a better view of the gun, but the violent act that would now be known as the 2018 Toronto shooting. On July 22, 2018, Faisal Hussein killed two people, Juliana Cozes, age 10, and Reese Fallon, age 18. He has well injured another 13 people in Greektown, Toronto. This disturbing event shook the whole province, but there is something even more unsettling about it. To this day, investigators do not know the motive behind this brutal attack. Unlike the case we just covered, where we knew Alex Bissonnette's motive was his racial beliefs, there was no rhyme or reason to why this incident occurred. Although, throughout the police reports and news coverages, there has been one consistent underlying theme, mental illness. In this segment of the podcast, we are going to uncover more about Faisal Hussein's mental health by speaking to a very special guest. To begin, I'd like to introduce our special guest, Astrid Tsai, psychotherapist at Thrive Counseling. Astrid graduated from Yorkville University with a master's degree in counseling psychology. She is well-versed in different mental illnesses and treatments. That being said, let's begin. Hello, Ms. Tsai. Welcome to The Ripple Effect. Thank you so much for coming. Hello, Adelina. Thank you so much for having me. So I know that you are familiar with the case and reviewed it, so why don't we get started? In the Global News report written by Jessica Patton, it was revealed that Faisal Hussein had been diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Can you tell us what this is? I'd be happy to. So antisocial personality disorder is defined as a mental disorder in which the person lacks the ability to feel guilt or remorse for their actions. So they would show a complete lack of empathy and usually struggle to understand how others feel. Now, people living with antisocial personality disorder or short ASPD can be manipulative, they can lie, um, they tend to act impulsively and sometimes violently with just complete disregard to any consequences. They often simply don't care how their behavior affects the feelings or even lives of other people. So therefore, they have a tendency to engage in often dangerous or illegal actions. So because of these behaviors, they typically struggle to fulfill responsibilities related to family, work, or school. And in Faisal Hussain's case, the mental illness was compounded by additional struggles with psychosis and depression. Even as a child, there were indications that he was deeply troubled. Uh, For example, it's known that he displayed actions and behaviors uh, that were in line with conduct disorder. So that would be pretty much antisocial behavior in children. However, to be diagnosed with ASPD, the person has to be 18 years or older. Uh, Ms. Tai, thank you for that very informative description of ASPD. All right, so now that we know what ASPD is, How can someone suffering from this mental disorder be further affected if they were taking drugs? In the police report, it was stated that drugs were found at Faisal Hussein's house. 
So ASPD is highly associated with substance or drug use. Um, this disorder typically comes with poor impulse control, which leads the person living with ASPD to engage in riskier behaviors than others. Um, that might mean experimenting with drugs without any concern for consequences, for example, such as contracting diseases by sharing contaminated needles. They may not worry about the harmful and dangerous effects drugs have on their bodies and that there are legal consequences for illicit drug use. Mm -hmm. Also, people living with ASPD often completely deny that they are addicted to drugs. They may even face exclusion from treatment facilities due to their manipulative and sometimes violent behaviors. So the negative toll drugs and alcohol take on their health increases over time, which places them at higher risk for permanent brain damage and other chronic health problems. Depressive and psychotic symptoms can also be connected to drug use and may further exacerbate the impulsivity seen in people living with ASPD. That's very, very interesting. Um, and an interesting remark is that I actually did some research prior to this interview on ASPD, mm -hmm. and it stated that people with this mental disorder may even deny that they have it. And mm -hmm. this is a crossover between what you said, how they may deny that they're even taking the drug. So that's very, very interesting. Thank you. Before I ask my next question, I want to give my listeners some more background information. In a video, Fazel's outreach counselor said that he had little support from his family as his brother was in a coma from a drug overdose and his sister passed away in a car crash, as well his father was suffering from his own health issues. So Ms. Tsai, my question is, how does family support factor in when someone is dealing with a mental disorder? Thank you, Adelina. It can be incredibly hard to live with a person who has been diagnosed with ASPD. Given the nature of their behaviors, such as deceptiveness, lying, manipulation, and just not showing any remorse for their actions. However, it's possible for people living with ASPD to avoid behaviors that could harm others, especially when they have support from compassionate family members and mental health professionals. So ideally, therapy can help people living with ASDP develop interpersonal skills, along with coping techniques for impulsivity and aggression. Family members can then enforce the use of these skills, which will help the person improve their relationships and avoid illegal or dangerous activity. They can also provide guidance and structure to help the person navigate their life in a safer way. Thank you for that answer. And that's just a friendly reminder to everyone that we should always treat others with kindness. Okay, now for my final question. Do you think that people suffering from mental illness to receive a less harsh sentence because of their mental disorder? I think it is dependent on the crime committed, the person's level of cognitive impairment, and their ability to judge right from wrong. Studies do suggest that ASPD is diagnosed relatively often in both female and male inmates and is associated with other types of co-occurring mental illness. However, serious crimes should not go unpunished so instead of standard incarceration, people who have ASPD and who've committed crimes may be better suited to get appropriate and innovative treatment while serving time in correctional settings. I believe what is critically important is that people living with severe mental illness are diagnosed early and receive the social and societal support that prevent tragedies such as the Danforth shooting. For example, stricter gun and drug laws, 
compassionate support from family, teachers, employers, and healthcare workers, and of course, the destigmatization of mental health struggles will make a difference in preventing such tragedies uh, from occurring in the future. Thank you, Mrs. Tsai, for those final remarks. I encourage my listeners to take a second and think about the last thing you said about destigmatizing mental health. We are all just humans fighting our own battles. We need to be there to support one another rather than add stress onto our lives. Thank you so much for coming on to The Ripple Effect and talking with us. I hope you have a great day. Thank you so much, Alina. I really appreciate it. I personally learned a lot of new content from our interview and hope you all did too. Like Ms. Tsai said, it is important to be compassionate, not only to those suffering from mental illness, but everyone around you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great day, and we hope you join us again on The Ripple Effect.